0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiskamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. If you could tell from the slight squeakiness in that announcement, uh, I'm your host, by the way, T. Greg Doucette, but I'm broadcasting from my apartment, Le Chateau T. Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina, uh, because I'm somehow sick again still. Uh, I apologize for y'all for not having an episode last week. Uh, Mike and I both went to visit our respective families for Easter. The idea was when we got back, we would go in the studio and record late at night. By the time he got back, he was tired. I had a cough and had not been feeling well. And I was like, there's no way I have the flu. It's not possible. I just had the flu back like in February. Um, So we decided not to record Sunday night, hoping that Monday, after a court hearing that I had, we'd be able to go into the studio. And then Monday rolled around. And I I called him after my hearing, and he basically banned me from the studio again because he thought I got a different strain of the flu. Uh, so we ended up not recording at all. So fast forward to Sunday as this is being recorded, and I am still coughing and hacking and relying on him to edit all of those out. And I have no earthly clue what the hell is wrong with me because I didn't think it was possible to get flu back to back. I mean, I thought the whole point of an immune system was that you get it once and you're good. I, uh, I went to the doctor this time because I was actually concerned, you know. I spent 30 minutes in the waiting room for what turned out to be like a five-minute visit that consisted of drink lots of water, feel free to cough, it's a defense mechanism, and uh, here's an inhaler, have a nice day. So we'll see what happens. At some point, God willing, I will be back in the studio because it sounds better than recording at my uh, kitchen table, but you're going to have to deal with it for now. Uh, some good news on the podcast front. As of today... We have 100 patrons. We are two-thirds of the way towards our goal of getting to 150. I made a promise to y'all that once we hit 150 patrons, I'd start trying to record these twice a week so that the episodes wouldn't be quite as long. Uh, in that regard, we've also made some slight changes to the the Patreon, very minor ones. Uh, First, there were a lot of folks that were giving us $3 a month that didn't, like, get access to the community or anything, so we've changed that. We've officially added a $3 tier. Uh, I don't know if you get added to that automatically or if you have to self-select into it, but regardless, you don't get anything fancy. You just get to, like, you know, post on the community tab and vote on polls when we have them and everything else, and we have brought back our $15 sponsorship level that used to be what we would call Samson Sponsors. So you might remember we started the Patreon account because I was trying to raise money for Samson's vet bills. And the idea of the Samson Sponsors is that when they get, they would uh, get pictures of the dog every now and again. Well, now that he's no longer with us, I can't fulfill that piece of the bargain, so I had to take that tier down. What we are doing is we are renaming it Show note Sponsors because I really wanted some form of at least semi-alliteration. So essentially what's going to happen is you still get access to all the bonus episodes that we put on the Patreon page. But in addition to that, starting with the next episode, uh, you're going to have an entry in all of the show notes where we list out every show note sponsor uh, plus our Law 140 lovers who we still have as well. So two minor changes to the Patreon account. Just want to give you a heads up on that. Tell your friends. Our goal is to hit 150 patrons. We are two-thirds of the way there. Uh, And thank you to everyone who has been a supporter. Um, We also have this week, we are going to have a brief Law 140 on restatements. And that came from one of our patrons who had a question. Uh, So we're going to talk about those and what they are and why they're important. All right. So if you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. I know we have over 2,000 followers at this point, but we only have about 1,500 listeners to the podcast. So make sure that you uh, tell folks who are following us to subscribe. And those of you that are subscribing but aren't following us on Twitter, please follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can also leave us a comment on our website, com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our trying-to-get-150 patrons, you can do so on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/fsck. All right, we're gonna gloss over the political stuff because we have a lot of criminal justice news. It's gonna be another twenty-page episode, uh, but there are a couple things I want to point out. First, you might remember from the last episode, I mentioned that we had eleven people who had resigned from the Trump White House in the span of a month. Uh, you can tack on three more. Uh, David Shulkin, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, has been fired. Uh, Todd Johnson who is a political appointee at the Department of Defense he's basically an advanced man the guy that helps coordinate Uh, he was outed as a birther so he resigned and then DJ Gribben Trump's top infrastructure advisor has resigned as well so we kept talking about infrastructure week in perpetuity and it never happened because there were always new scandals Uh, I guess Gribben got tired of it you know it's funny because the the talk about Washington is always that it's a revolving door. You serve for a bit, you go off and go do something else. It's really not a revolving door at all. It's a door with a doorknob, and Washington is the doorknob. Everybody gets a turn in the White House. Uh, Also, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, this guy, this guy's a clown. He has been a clown since he got appointed. But a story came out last week where he was paying $50 a night to stay in a lobbyist's condo blocks away from the Capitol when he came into DC to do his job. Uh, I'm just gonna give you some quotes from the Washington Post story. Uh, it says, Quote Pruitt paid fifty dollars for each night that he physically stayed in the condo, which sits a th- stone's throw from the Capitol, and is co owned by healthcare lobbyist Vicky Hart. According to people familiar with the arrangement, who spoke on the condition of anonymity, Pruitt initially approached her husband, lawyer Stephen Hart, about staying there during his confirmation process in 2017 and then extended the terms of the arrangement through last July. Hart is chairman and chief executive of the law firm Williams & Jensen and lobbies on energy, transportation, trade, tax, and entertainment industry issues. Though the condo lacked some of the amenities of traditional rentals, such as a phone line, $50 per night is an exceedingly good deal for a prime location near the Capitol. No shit. You go try and find something near the Capitol, you're looking at double that. And frankly, who needs a phone line when we have mobile phones everywhere nowadays? Well, that was the first story. turned out to be just the tip of the iceberg because as the media started to investigate, they found out that this guy bypassed normal rules on... um, Raises so that he could give some raises to some of his cronies. He has an around-the-clock security detail that costs $2 million a year. And here's a quote from a different story. It says, quote, Pruitt's security team currently consists of 19 agents and a fleet of at least 19 vehicles. With the cost of maintenance, gas, and training for agents, that leaves the dollar amount for his round-the-clock security in the millions. Now, look, my 3 year of law school, the EPA administrator, Lisa Jackson, I think that was her name, came to North Carolina Central University School of Law to talk to us. Uh, I think she had one Secret Service agent and one staffer. The notion that she would have 19—holy shit, I mean, that's just a ton of people. But then that's not it, because in addition, Mr. Pruitt, quote, bought a $100,000 per month charter aircraft membership, spent $70,000 to replace two office desks, and wasted $43,000 on a soundproof telephone booth in his office— it's, it's wild. And then when people brought it up, the people who questioned him got demoted. Now, look, this is not normal. I've said this before. This is not normal. For all of the corruption that we, I complain about with government, this is taking it to a brand new level. Frankly, this is insane. So, OK, let's go ahead and jump into some of the criminal justice news. The Eighth Circuit has really been bouncing back and forth on whether or not they think people need to have qualified immunity. And there are two stories where I, you know, I read the first opinion. I'm like, oh, this is great. And then I read a different opinion. And I'm like, how can the same judges come to these conclusions? So the uh, there's a case. It's Bernickelle, Dustin Bernickelle versus Fong et al. It uh, basically says that police can no longer punch you in the nose and the testicles after you've been pepper sprayed. That's the gist of it. Uh, From the opinion, I'm going to read you some of the excerpts, but the gist of it is this. This guy was at a bar, and after he left the bar, he was waiting in a taxi line and sees down near the end of the line a guy in a black coat basically beating the shit out of a woman. And he thought that it was just some random guy beating a woman, did not realize that it was actually a cop. So you have that as the background. In the opinion, the judges write, quote, "...as Bernicel stood near the back of the line at the cab stand, he saw a man dressed in black throw a woman to the ground. Bernicel heard the woman scream and cry, and he thought the man was attacking her. Not knowing that the man was a police officer and not seeing police insignias on his coat, Bernicel called out, "...what are you doing to her? Why are you hurting her?" According to Sovereign, who is one of the witnesses, Bernickelle's hands were at his sides and facing out when he called out to Officer Fong, as if to indicate that he was asking a question. Derek, who is another witness, testified that Bernickelle's feet never moved and that his arms were positioned to indicate that he was in disbelief, like, subquote, what's happening right in front of me. Upon hearing Bernickelle's questions, Fong released the woman and immediately deployed pepper spray into Bernickelle's face. The burning sensation caused Bernickel to bend over and lift his hands to his eyes. Sovereign and Derek saw him step or stumble backwards. Blinded by the pepper spray, Bernickel remembers being punched in the stomach with a blow that brought him to his knees. He continued to be struck in the stomach, sides, midsection, and testicles until he fell to the ground. The beating continued as Bernickel tried to use his hands to protect his face. After one of the officers moved Bernickel's arm, Fonk punched Bernickel in the face. All the while, Bernickelle did not fight back. In response to commands to stop resisting, Bernikel yelled, I didn't do anything. I'm not resisting. Stop hitting me. Neither Fong nor Officer Wessels identified himself as a police officer during the altercation. After the officers finally handcuffed Bernikel, they lifted him from the ground to drop him face first onto the concrete. Many of Bernickelle's teeth were cracked or broken during the encounter with the officers. He was badly bruised and suffered injuries to his face, back, ribs, legs, and testicles. He was arrested and charged with three misdemeanors, interference with a police officer, public intoxication, and resisting arrest. Following a two-day trial, a jury acquitted Bernickelle on all counts. Officers Fong and Wessels argue that their use of force violated no clearly established Fourth Amendment right. Assuming that Bernickelle's version of the story is true, now I'm going to do a sidebar here. Notice how narrowly the court is making this case. They're tacking on so many qualifiers that you won't be able to use this case as precedent somewhere else. Assuming that Bernickelle's version of the story is true... That he merely inquired about the woman's well-being, that he did not threaten anyone, did not appear to threaten anyone, did not resist arrest, and did not fail to comply with the officer's commands. A reasonable officer standing in Fong's or Wessel's shoes would have understood that the amount of force they used was excessive. So basically that list of four things that he did not do, if any one of those is even slightly different, In a future case, this case will be useless as um, precedent. But at the very least, there was no qualified immunity there, so that's a good thing, right? Well, the exact same court had a different case also released in the past two weeks where beating a mentally ill man with nunchucks does give you qualified immunity. I'm not going to go into all the facts because the case is ridiculous. I'm going to give you the link in the show notes so you can read it. But the gist of it is this. Dad called the police... To help his son, who's paranoid schizophrenic and had not been taking his meds. The uh, son, being off meds, is sitting in his bedroom talking gibberish, and he's sitting on the mattress. The cops twist his arm until it breaks, repeatedly use nunchucks on his right elbow, tase him five different times... And the court goes to great lengths with each individual officer who responded to find that they either did not use excessive force or were entitled to qualified immunity. So I'll give you the link to that opinion as well. In uh, general research news, this isn't criminal justice related, but it was interesting just the same. The New York Times did a deep dive on evictions and how the courts help process those and how many of them there are. Uh, And it's a very, they got a lot of interactive charts and stuff that I'll give you in the show notes, but it's definitely something you should check out. Here's some excerpts from the story. It says, quote, before the first hearings on the morning docket, the lines start to clog the lobby of the John Marshall courthouse. No cell phones are allowed inside, but many of the people who've been summoned don't learn that until they arrive. Put it in your car, the sheriff's deputy suggests at the metal detector. That advice is no help to renters who have come by bus. To make it inside, some tuck their phones in the bushes nearby. This courthouse handles every eviction in Richmond, Virginia, a city with one of the highest eviction rates in the country, according to new data covering dozens of states and compiled by a team led by the Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond. Two years ago, Mr. Desmond turned eviction into a national topic of conversation with Evicted, a book that chronicled how poor families who lost their homes in Milwaukee sank even deeper into poverty. But for all the attention the problem began to draw, even Mr. Desmond could not say how widespread it was. So Mr. Desmond's team found records for nearly 900,000 eviction judgments in 2016, meaning landlords were given the legal right to remove at least one in 50 renter households in the communities covered by this data. That figure was one in 25 in Milwaukee and one in nine in Richmond. The consequences of what happens here then spread across the city. The Richmond public school system reroutes buses to follow children from apartments to homeless shelters to pay-by-the-week motels. City social workers coach residents on how to fill out job applications when they have no answer for the address line. Families lose their food stamps and Medicaid benefits when they lose the permanent addresses where renewal notices are sent. Uh, It gets more bleak from there, but it's basically, you know, if you lose your house and you become homeless, as I was for a time, it is hard as fuck to get back on your feet. Uh, so, definitely check that out. Also, out of the New York Times, they have an expose on the uh, chicanery that happens at private prisons. Basically, it, it's rooted in the civil rights trial down in Mississippi, but they go into a deep dive on uh, how they have uh, too few guards. The guards are underpaid, so they're inclined to do illicit things. There aren't enough of them, so the inmates will walk around crazy and beat them, you know, beat other people. Uh, the ones who have mental illnesses can't get their medications. Sometimes they're also violent. So there's a it's it's not a fun article, but you should check it out. But it's a reminder that how we treat the incarcerated people in this country is an abomination because it prevents rehab. And if you can't be rehabilitated while you're locked up, it makes it more likely that you're going to reoffend when you get out. You can't say on the one hand, we're going to lock up a shitload of people. But then on the other hand, we're going to do it cheap in these private prisons that doesn't give them a chance to have any hope of being a successful and productive citizen when they're released. And, of course, the president wants more private prisons because he's a fucking idiot. Uh, So also out of the UK Guardian, they also have an expose on prisons. But this one follows the mental illness aspect of it. Uh, From their story, it says, quote, more than 50 years after Kesey's novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, State psychiatric hospitals of the sort he described are long gone. Yet, if we think that the hellish world Kesey captured belongs to another era, we are deluded. It's true that the hospitals have mostly disappeared. Between 1950 and 2000, the number of people with serious mental illness living in psychiatric institutions dropped from almost half a million people to only about 50,000. But none of the rest of it has gone away. Not the cruelty, the filth, the bad food, or the brutality nor, most importantly, has the large population of people with mental illness who are kept largely out of sight, their poor treatment invisible to most ordinary Americans. The only real difference between Kesey's time and our own is that the mistreatment of people with mental illness now happens in jails and prisons. Today, the country's largest providers of psychiatric care are not hospitals at all, but rather the jails in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York City." Uh, In federal news, ProPublica has an expose on your federal government and how it betrays informants and then deports them to their deaths. Uh, They have a story on a kid named Henry where he was forced into MS-13 back when he was 12. He had to kill a man as part of the initiation, right? This was back back home. I I think it was in Honduras. Don't quote me on that. Uh, He fled to America when he was 15 with help from his parents. MS-13 actually found him in New York and pushed him to get back into the gang. And MS-13 had killed at least five of his classmates. Henry helped save one, decided to snitch on the rest of them, actually cooperated with the FBI that led to many of those folks being arrested. And the government decided in exchange for that help that they were going to deport him back to his country of origin, where he's most likely going to be killed. Now, aside from the dishonor, of this type of system, where the government promises you something in exchange for something else, you uphold your end of the bargain, and the government says, ha ha, fuck you. It's also stupid. You can't get reliable informants if you're not going to honor your commitments to them in exchange for the information. So I'm going to give you that expose. It's a a very long read. It took me about 20 minutes to get through it during lunch. It's uh, pretty sobering stuff. Uh, Also, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Director in California has apologized for being a dick. Uh, basically, the guy uploaded a photo on Facebook uh, of three umbrellas, and then put as the caption, "I spent 20 minutes talking to them to learn more about their culture until the barman told me they were umbrellas." Basically, implying that these were Muslim women uh, in burkas. You know, is it any surprise that the people who think shit like this is funny are put in charge of dealing with things like immigration and policing? Uh, but the kicker is that he had this bullshit ass apology afterwards. Uh, it says, "Quote." The post was directed to a former co-worker and instructor in Arab culture and was meant to poke fun at myself and use me as an example to show that everyone can and should keep learning about people from different cultures, including people like me with extensive experience working with different cultures and traditions, uh, said David Jennings in a statement provided to BuzzFeed News by ICE. I am horrified that the post would be taken as anything other than a dig at myself. But upon further reflection, I understand how it could be interpreted otherwise, and I am truly sorry. It was not my intention to offend anyone, and I hope that the explanation of my intent assuages any hurt the post may have inadvertently caused. You know, look, this type of shit is not slick, all right? That post, regardless of what your intent of it was, there's no conceivable way it would be taken as self-deprecation, all right? You're not poking fun at yourself for some shit like that. Uh, So that guy's gone. Good riddance. Uh, Also in federal government news, an internal revenue service agent, James Clark, got a 21-year-old intern drunk, shoved his gun in her mouth, and raped her at gunpoint. He's been arraigned in Massachusetts but then was released on his own recognizance with no bond of any kind because apparently having a gun and raping someone at gunpoint is no big deal up there. Uh, Out of California. I don't know how the city's pronounced if it's Gardenia or Gardena or something like that. Uh, but the gist of it is two police officers have been federally indicted for selling at least 100 illegal weapons. From the story it says, quote, two Gardena police officers have been indicted by a federal grand jury on charges of using their position to acquire firearms and illegally selling more than 100 of the weapons to others, including a convicted felon. Detective Carlos Fernandez Officer Eduardo Arreo both face a combined five felony counts, including conspiring to deal in firearms without a license, according to the indictment unsealed in United States District Court. The 25-page indictment alleges that from 2015 to 2017, the two officers exploited their positions to deal 101 firearms to people barred from owning or selling such weapons unless they are in law enforcement or the military. So we talked a few podcasts back about how fully automatic weapons are already prohibited for civilian sale. Mm -hmm. Under the National Firearms Act, you can't go buy one if you're a normal American. Basically, these guys were taking weapons like that that they can get in their capacity as police and then selling it to people willy nilly. Uh, Out of Sacramento, a deputy with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office was caught on cell phone video deliberately running over a protester. We call that the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. You're going to hear that one quite a bit this week. From the story, it says, quote, a protester at a vigil Saturday night for Stephon Clark was hit by a Sacramento County Sheriff's Department vehicle on Florin Road, the latest tense moment between law enforcement and activists following the March 18th police shooting of the unarmed black man. Both witnesses and the struck protester said the sheriff's vehicle left the scene after the accident. The collision, captured on video by Guy Danilowicz of the National Lawyers Guild, occurred as protesters marched on Florin Road in South Sacramento. Cleveland, the woman who was struck, was released from Kaiser Permanente South Sacramento Medical Center after midnight with bruises on her arm and the back of her head. Subquote, he never even stopped. It was a hit and run. If I did that, I'd be charged, Cleveland said at the hospital. It's disregard for human life. Now, it gets worse because, of course, the sheriff claims that this all happened because protesters were damaging the vehicles and that there were paid protesters there to help cause trouble. Except, the SUV that struck the woman was not damaged, so the notion that they, people were damaging vehicles doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. And there's no indication that the woman who was run over trying to cross the street was paid to be there. So the sheriff just basically brought up some irrelevant bullshit, hoping that it would all go away. Out of San Francisco, taxpayers are going to be on the hook for more than $10 million. After police framed Jamal Trula for murder, he served six years and then was released. From the story, it says, quote, A federal court jury awarded $10 million in damages Friday to a San Francisco man who spent six years in prison before his murder conviction was thrown out. Jamal Trulove accused four San Francisco police officers of framing him for a 2007 killing at the city's Sunnydale Public Housing Complex. An eight-member jury in Oakland heard three weeks of testimony and deliberated for two days before unanimously finding Friday that the two lead homicide inspectors on the case, Officer Michael Johnson and Officer Maureen D'Amico, had violated True Love's rights by fabricating evidence against him and withholding other evidence that might have helped him. There was also evidence that the officers were aware of another possible suspect who was never even investigated, the judge said. Now, we've covered this several times before. This is why we invented the third rule of Fiske. There are no new stories, only new names and jurisdictions, because the people who get screwed are not just the wrongly accused. Now, this guy lost six years of his life. That's terrible. There's going to be another story you're going to hear about that's even worse. But in addition to that, the family of the guy who was killed still doesn't have justice because they have no clue who the fuck killed him because the police didn't bother to investigate. So that's out of California, in Georgia, in Molina. Uh, Deputies killed a 70-year-old man because they were apparently not physically fit enough to subdue him. From the story, it says, quote, an initial investigation by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation shows that the Pike County Sheriff's Office got a 911 call to report a person holding a gun at another. When deputies arrived, they found 70-year-old Grady Parks armed with a shotgun and a handgun chasing the person who called 911. Now, here's where this stuff gets a little weird. Deputies ordered Parks to drop his weapons. Okay, that makes sense, but those orders were not heeded. No surprise there. A deputy then used his taser to try to subdue Parks, but it was unsuccessful. Okay, that happens, I guess. Then, quote, that's when the Bureau of Investigation said a, subquote, brief struggle Broke out between the seventy year old and the deputies. What the hell is a brief struggle between the seventy year old and the deputies To me, that seems to imply that there's some kind of physical articulation going on between officers who are theoretically physically fit and a seventy year old man whose only weapons were guns that he evidently didn't have on him during this struggle because otherwise he wouldn't be struggling. Story continues. In the next moments, the GBI said Parks reportedly raised his shotgun at deputies and fired. However, the shot missed. One of the deputies subsequently fired his weapon, hitting Parks twice. Uh, Eat your spinach, guys. That's the gist. That's all I can say on that. Uh, Out of Iowa, the state Supreme Court decides that they're going to allow people who have pled guilty to later contest those pleas as part of claims for actual innocence. From the news story, and I'm going to give you the link to the opinion as well, but from the news story, it says, "quote Iowa Supreme Court Justice David Wiggins, in the majority ruling, asks, what kind of system of justice do we have if we permit actually innocent people to remain in prison? It is time that we refuse to perpetuate a system of justice that allows actually innocent people to remain in prison, even those who profess guilt despite their actual innocence. The 4-3 to decision by Justices Wiggins, Hecht, Apple and Chief Justice Katie ruled the Iowa Constitution allows a convicted person now claiming innocence to show by clear and convincing evidence that no judge or jury would convict in light of all the evidence, including any newly discovered evidence. You know, this is actually a really good thing, despite the whining of uh, certain people in the media, because the fact is innocent people plead guilty all the time. One of my Twitter threads that went viral years ago was on a client I had who not only was innocent, but like I desperately wanted to take the case to trial because as a defense attorney, it keeps you sharp trying cases and it's fun beating up on prosecutors when you can actually win a case. It doesn't happen all that often. But he ended up pleading guilty anyway as part of a deferred prosecution agreement because he had missed three court dates already and was going to lose his job if he had to miss another one because we hadn't been able to try the case yet. I had been calling the case for trial and we just never got heard. Uh, So this happens all the time. And when you have new evidence in particular – especially when we have situations that we cover all across the country of police framing people or lying during their testimony. You have to have an outlet where that type of stuff can be exposed. If you just say, hey, you play guilty, that's a wrap, that doesn't do that. So good on the Iowa Supreme Court. Out of Kentucky, in Louisville, as a uh, periodic reminder that police can, in fact, arrest people without killing them if they choose to do so. From the story, it says, quote, a Louisville man is in jail, After allegedly firing a rifle at police officers responding to a domestic assault, Oscar Walters, 68, was arrested Thursday on three counts of wanton endangerment of a police officer, assault of a police officer, second-degree assault, and resisting arrest. When officers arrived at the scene, Walters' wife told police he had assaulted her with a flashlight, leaving visible injuries to her head. Walters pointed a rifle at officers as they approached the front door of the home. As officers took cover, Walters fired the rifle through the door, causing the glass to shatter. Walters fled the home and refused officers' commands as they attempted to take him into custody, resisting arrest by pulling away from them. One officer even had his hand broken in the process, and yet this guy was arrested alive. You will be shocked, I know, to find out that Oscar Walters is white. But kudos on the Louisville Police Department for figuring out that they can arrest a guy without having to kill him. Uh, out of Louisiana... Uh, sorry, I got a segue. So the mayor of Louisiana... Mayor of New Orleans, Louisiana, was on Bill Maher, and I watched it, uh, among other things, because I like watching real-time with Bill Maher. But on top of that, people have been teasing the fuck out of me for a while because of how I pronounce New Orleans. The fact that I, you know, put a syllable to every piece of the vowels you know i don't call it nolens or whatever the fuck else people are supposed to say and everyone told me that i'm saying it wrong it is not new orleans well guess what your own fucking mayor pronounces it new orleans just like i do so i don't actually care anymore about your opinions the mayor pronounces it my way i'm pronouncing it my way it's new orleans uh, but louisiana has long been a floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck when it comes to criminal justice. Uh, And as part of that, The Advocate, which is one of the papers in New Orleans, has done a a review of the state's non-unanimous jury law. So there are only two states in the country where a jury can convict you of a crime without having a unanimous verdict. It's Louisiana and Oregon. In both states, that was put in place to enable the Klan to help convict black folks. Because you have large black populations in Louisiana in particular— Uh, And if you had a unanimous jury, a black defendant would theoretically be acquitted. So by not having to have unanimity, you can convict that guy and send him away to prison. From the story, it says, quote, Louisiana split jury law was adopted in 1898 during a notoriously racist constitutional convention. An excerpt from the official journal of the proceedings of the Constitutional Convention of the State of Louisiana Reads, subquote Our mission was, in the first place, to establish the supremacy of the white race in this state to the extent to which it could be legally and constitutionally done. The advocate found jury voting records for 993 convictions over about a six year time span. The decisions reached in 402 of those trials would have been invalid in the 48 other states. Roughly 40% of the people who are convicted after jury trials in Louisiana are convicted by non-unanimous juries. That is a huge fucking number. 40% are non-unanimous jury verdicts. Uh, So uh, we continue, quote, of the non-unanimous convictions, we found 53% were 11 to 1 jury votes and another 47% were 10 to 2 jury votes. The advocate analysis also found that Louisiana's aberrant, aberrant, how the hell you pronounce that? I don't actually know. Aberrant, I guess. Uh, Basically, out of the ordinary. I know what the word means. I just don't know how to say it. Uh, Majority verdict law poses a disadvantage for black defendants. I bet that one shocks you. Quote, they are more likely than white defendants to be convicted by non-unanimous juries. Blacks make up 32% of Louisiana's population, but 66% of state inmates and 74% of those serving life. Uh, also out of New Orleans, additional body camp footage was released in the extrajudicial summary execution of Alton Sterling two years ago, and it's noteworthy because a couple of years back the family of Alton Sterling was told that the officer promised to kill him before he actually did it, and a bunch of little Twitter Nazis and trolls came out of the woodwork to claim it was all bullshit, uh, well guess what, the body camp footage confirms the family's story completely. I'm going to give you the link to the transcript, but among it, you have the officer who ended up killing him saying, quote, don't fucking move or I'll fucking shoot your ass, bitch. Put your fucking hands on the car. Put your hands on the car. I'm going to shoot you in the fucking head. You understand me? Don't you fucking move. I'm going to shoot you in your fucking head. You hear me? Don't you fucking move as he like gets louder and louder and louder to the point where he's screaming like a fucking child. Um they of course they end up later tackling Sterling to the ground and shooting him repeatedly. Now it's worth noting, neither officer was ever prosecuted. Uh, officer Lake, who was one of the guys on the scene, was suspended for three days. Officer Salamone, who who's the one who pulled the trigger, was fired. But the Department of Justice never bothered to look into it. And the Louisiana folks aren't gonna of course they're not gonna fucking prosecute anybody. Are you kidding me? Louisiana kills so many fucking people. If they set a precedent, that'd be a bad look for them. Uh, so that's out of Louisiana in Maryland in Silver Springs. A police officer has been arrested for stealing oatmeal and condoms from a local Walmart from the story. It says, quote, sorry, he stole a vacuum cleaner, too, uh, it says, quote, a Maryland police officer stole a Dyson vacuum cleaner, instant oatmeal and two boxes of <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. It's like the guy's sowing his oats, literally. You know what I mean? Uh, Instant oatmeal and two boxes of condoms during his off-duty security job at a Walmart store, according to Montgomery County police officials, and a statement of charges the department filed Sunday. The officer, Jose Barahona, 25, of Silver Spring, took the items during a continuing course of conduct in the store in Germantown, according to court filings, which also state the store surveillance video shows that Barahona took additional unknown items going back to late last year. The officer, who joined the Montgomery County force four years ago, most recently worked patrol in the county's Wheaton district. He has been suspended from duty with pay, gets a paid vacation for theft, Pending the completion of this investigation and future court action, police officials said in a statement. Fourth rule of Fisk, The Wire was a documentary. Uh, In Michigan, in Detroit, Richard Phillips has been released from prison. This is the story that I mentioned to you back when we were talking about California. He served more than 45 years for a murder that he did not commit. He's now 71 years old, spent 45 years of his life in prison for something he did not do. From the story, it says, quote, America's longest-serving exoneree. That's a hell of a fucking title to have, by the way. You set the Guinness World Record for being locked up wrongfully more than anyone else. Uh, America's longest-serving exoneree put his left arm around his attorney's shoulder in a Detroit courtroom Tuesday. She softly pat his 71-year-old hand. We are done, attorney Gabby Silver told Richard D. Phillips, who served 45-plus years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. We are finally done. Wayne Circuit Judge Kevin Cox, moments before, dismissed charges of first-degree murder and conspiracy against Phillips for the 1971 killing of Gregory Harris, a crime for which Phillips was framed decades ago. This is now the second story in the span of a couple weeks where a guy was framed and the police got it wrong, and no one, who, no one knows who killed Gregory Harris still, so his family is still not getting justice 45 years later. Uh, in Mississippi, there's a story in the Jackson Free Press talking about gangs. And I'm going to save the the punchline for the end because you're not going to – well, you probably will believe it because you're listening to this podcast. But I had a hard time believing it, quite frankly. From the story, it says, quote, "Over the last year, members of the Mississippi Association of Gang Investigators worked to spread the message that many of the state's toughest gang members are white. Between the growing Simon City Royals, white supremacist groups like the Aryan Brotherhood, and biker clubs such as the Violent Bandidos, started by a white marine in Texas in 1966, who would later be convicted of murder, in August." M.A.G.I. told the Clarion-Ledger that 53% of verified gang members are white. It is a potentially surprising statistic in the state with the highest proportion of African-Americans in the nation and that experiences a large amount of media coverage of its black and Hispanic gangs. So take a guess how many white people have been prosecuted under Mississippi's anti-gang law, keeping in mind that 53% of gang members are white. Drumroll, please. Now, I know at least one of you guessed zero because I have the best listeners in the world, and that is the answer. Zero people. Not, not 0% as a result of a rounding error, but no, zero actual people. Mississippi has only charged black folks and Hispanics under their anti-gang law. From the story, it continues, quote, In the lead-up to this year's legislative session in Mississippi, supporters of a tougher gang law in the state talked a lot about the need to arrest white people. But in an ironic twist, the Jackson Free Press has learned that everyone arrested under the existing gang law from 2010 through 2017 was African American. Uh, That's in Mississippi, out of New Jersey, in Gloucester Township, another first rule of Fisk. Body cam footage has been released showing police officer John Flynn savagely beating the everlasting shit out of a 13-year-old girl as she's being put under arrest. From the story, it says, quote, "...a review of the police video released Friday shows the girl's face down with both arms pulled behind her back when the blows are delivered. She could be heard crying out after being hit." Flynn, a 27-year-old who's been a Gloucester Township police officer since 2015, was suspended after the incident. Prosecutors said Friday they're charging him with simple assault. It's not clear if Flynn has retained legal counsel. The girl was not charged in the original incident. See, they're calling that simple assault. We would call that child abuse here in North Carolina or assault on a female. Either one. It's a very serious crime. But when you have a badge and you're in New Jersey, they let you get away with it. It takes a, it takes a real special kind of man to get his jollies, beating a 13-year-old, by the way. Uh, at a Jersey City, this is another third rule of Fisk issue. There are no new stories, only new faces and jurisdictions. Two Jersey City police officers have been charged after beating a Domino's manager because their pizza was late. From the story it says quote two Jersey City police officers have been suspended after video surfaced showing the cop duo attacking a Domino's pizza store manager over an undelivered pizza Hudson County prosecutors in New Jersey charged both Rodney Clark and Courtney Solomon with disorderly conduct harassment and making terroristic threats for the incident recorded by several stunned employees Witnesses said officers arrived at the Comunipaw Avenue Domino's Tuesday evening to follow up on an online complaint over an undelivered pizza. Clark and Solomon can be seen barging into the store and shoving their way back to the manager as several employees pulled out their phones to record the pushy police officers' demands for their pizza. Surveillance video, first obtained by WNBC-TV, shows manager Mina Carolos being shoved up against the wall by the two Jersey City officers as one threatens, I'll lock you up. Now, this might sound familiar to you because the fact is another pizza place in New Jersey was a story we covered before where an officer uh, had an issue with it, but it also happened at a pizza place in Missouri. And here in North Carolina, where we happened to eat barbecue, police decided to terrorize a Smithfields barbecue restaurant. So we'll give you links to all of those in the show notes. Uh, Out of New York, we have a lot of stories from New York City. One, two, three, four, five from NYC. Uh, First, you can add showerhead to Skittles, Lucy's cell phones and the other long ass list of things black men can't carry without getting shot to death uh, because the NYPD decided to summarily execute Saheed Vassell, a mentally ill man who was walking around the neighborhood holding a showerhead. From the story, it says, quote, New York City police officers shot and killed a black man who was known to be mentally ill on a Brooklyn street corner on Wednesday afternoon after he pointed what the officers believed was a gun at them. The object, however, turned out to be a metal pipe with a knob on it. It's a shower head, guys. It's obvious from the picture. Uh, continues quote: The suspect then took a two-handed shooting stance and pointed an object at the approaching officers. That's the statement from the police chief. Uh, as a result, quote: Four of the five responding officers, three in street clothes and one in a uniform, fired ten bullets in all. The man, identified by his father as Saheed Vassel, 34, was pronounced dead after being taken to Kings County Medical Center. Now, this guy was the 331st person killed by police so far in 2018. That means police have been killing, on average, more than 3.5 Americans a day. So we're on track for 1,285 dead people by the end of the year if this pace continues, a fuckload higher than years past. It's absolutely insane. Uh, also out in New York City, a Bronx corrections officer shot and killed a woman on accident. And I'm putting that in air quotes. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a correction officer has been charged after a woman was fatally shot inside a Bronx apartment building overnight. The officer claims his gun went off accidentally. The single gunshot woke up people who live in the building on Ogden Avenue around 1030 p.m. Wednesday. Police arrived to find 35 year old Marie Faye dead on the scene and 42 year old correction officer Elaine Samba with a gun. Samba claims his weapon went off accidentally. A source tells PIX11 the officer claimed he was cleaning the gun when it fired. Now look, you got to clean your gun after every time you use it. I've cleaned my nine millimeter multiple times. I don't know how it is possible for a gun to go off because to clean it, you got to take the fucking thing apart. You take the magazine out, you take the barrel off, you you know, you disassemble the whole fucking thing. It's not possible to shoot it while you're cleaning it. I I don't know. I mean, maybe if you're cleaning a revolver, I guess, but in that case, you're a really fucking moron for having it loaded while you're cleaning it. But to clean a, you know, a handgun, a pistol, a semi-automatic, I I don't understand how that's possible. So I think this guy's full of shit. Uh, Richard Hall, you guys might remember him. He's the one who raped the teenage girl that he arrested for drugs. Uh, Well, it turns out he's also fucking the prosecutor. From the story, it says, quote, a Brooklyn prosecutor was caught having an affair with one of the NYPD cops accused of raping a handcuffed teenager. Assistant District Attorney Nicole Menini is under investigation for violating professional conduct rules for New York lawyers, according to sources familiar with the matter. Menini's illicit relationship with now former Detective Richard Hall was uncovered when investigators with her office reviewed his cell phone as part of the rape case. The phone logs reveal multiple calls between Maniti and Hall, who is married with two kids. Uh, Also out of New York City, a teenage girl was arrested and held for seven hours for leaving school, even though she had permission from her mother to leave school because she was sick. Uh, I'm going to give you the link to that in the story. She was handcuffed to a pole for six hours and 45 minutes. Uh, Also, Congress critter Dan Donovan decided to use his position as a Congress critter to try and help out Uh, the son of his domestic partner, avoid a drug bust. From the story, it says, quote, Donovan, a former district attorney who now represents Staten Island and part of South Brooklyn, stepped in after his domestic partner's son was arrested with a friend for criminal sale and possession of a controlled substance, that case being heroin. Later that evening, Donovan, while serving in Congress, and as a former district attorney, visited the precinct and used his position to illegally request that officers issue O'Connell and the friend a desk appearance ticket instead of proceeding with normal arrest protocols. The intervention allowed the detained person to be immediately released from custody, as well as for the records to be sealed. Now, Donovan's a Republican and a drug warrior who spent a lot of time when he was a DA prosecuting the fuck out of these cases. It's hilarious to me that these hypocrites, these fuckers will love the war on drugs all day long until it's their own families who are affected. Fuck him. Uh, Out of North Carolina, we got a couple stories. First one's out of Asheville. You might remember a few weeks back, we talked about the beating of uh, Johnny Rush, the guy who was beat by Asheville police officer Chris Hickman. Well, remember, that story only came out because someone in the department illegally leaked the video. The police spent months trying to cover it up. Well, since then, the city council has fired the city manager. They haven't fired the police chief, which I don't fucking understand, but it's Asheville, so I don't try. Um, But he is gone. And the city council asked that all of the video about the case be released, which it has been. And it makes the Asheville PD look even worse, if that was even possible. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Newly released body camera footage of a police beating of a black pedestrian shows different perspectives of the brutal encounter that went viral after a leaked video was published a month ago. Several of the videos clarify aspects of the August encounter that led to criminal charges against then-officer Chris Hickman, including felony assault by strangulation. Those charges came after the Citizen Times published a portion of Hickman's body cam footage that it obtained on February 28th, six months after the beating. It shows on two separate occasions, Hickman is shown holding pedestrian Johnny Rush by the neck, once with his hands and another time with his arms. Hickman is seen stunning Rush with his taser, claiming to have clubbed him in the face with the stun gun. The video also shows a strange contrast with conversation between Rush and Hickman outside Mission Hospital after Rush is treated, in which the men discuss the incident. Rush says, subquote, I understand that I ran, but you didn't have to keep punching me and choking me. Yes, I did, Hickman replies. Rush then asks why. Subquote, Because you never complied with my orders. You didn't put your hands behind your back. Rush responds, but how when you were choking me? And the officer says, I didn't start choking you until I probably punched you about 10 times. Jesus Christ, this guy, it's insane. It's insane to me how this has all transpired. And the video makes it look worse than it did a couple weeks ago. Uh, Also in Durham, we have the annual police report that the chief gives to the city council. And you'll notice there are some, some tidbits in it. That if you think about what they really mean, basically confirms that Durham police were actively violating citizens' rights in years past. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Durham Police Chief C.J. Davis presented her annual crime report to the city council on Monday night. Here are some highlights. Uh, Traffic stops in Durham have had major drops over the past seven years, according to data presented by the department. The overall rate of searches in 2017 was 4%, the lowest rate in eight years. There were 11,578 traffic stops in 2017. In 2010, there had been 32,227. So that's a, a tremendous drop. You have a third as many traffic stops as you did before because Chief Davis has basically ended taillight policing, which was part of my campaign platform back in 2016. Not saying she took the advice from me, just saying I was right. But it continues. Jason Shees who analyzed the department's search data, said there were two reasons for the reduction. Police officers could no longer check off multiple reasons to search a car and new computer software in 2015, plus the city's policy change in 2014 that required written consent forms for vehicle searches. The searches officers did conduct in 2017 produced a higher rate of hits, which means any search in which contraband is found, like money, drugs, or weapons. So think about this. Your percent of searches has gone down, but your hit rate, the number of times your searches result in something that is arrestable, has gone up. What that means is the police had been searching a bunch of people for no fucking reason, not actually accomplishing anything except harassing citizens for driving around the city. So credit to Chief Davis. The Durham Police Department has changed a lot just in the past couple of years since she's been here. I've been impressed. You know, on the one hand, it hurts my pocketbook as a defense attorney because I don't have as many clients calling. But on the other hand, I like knowing that I live in a city where police are not actively violating people's rights for sport. That's the job of the Durham County Sheriff's Department. Uh, In Oklahoma, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I fucking love the Sheriff's Department. I just think our sheriff is ridiculous. Uh, In Oklahoma, out of Norman, Norman Police Department uh, shows how they uh, how to effectively handle an officer-involved shooting uh, because they basically just didn't bullshit at all. They said, here's what's happened, here's the data, give us some time to figure it out. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, police on Thursday released the name of a man who was shot by police officers during a confrontation Sunday, as well as the two officers who shot him. Lieutenant Clay Bolin, a 25-year veteran of the department, and Officer Chris Allison, a seven-year veteran of the department, shot and wounded Ronnie Lewis Miller III Sunday afternoon. Miller was taken by ambulance to a hospital where he remained in critical condition Thursday. So basically, the department, they held a press conference. They identified the officers and the victim. They released all of the video, and they took questions, explaining things like why they didn't try a taser or something like that first. Essentially, in this case, they were too far away. They weren't within taser range. But this is basically how you should conduct yourself when you're dealing with an officer-involved shooting. It's not an ideal scenario, because ideally the police shouldn't be shooting folks. But if you're going to do it, this is how you handle the fallout. Uh, Out of Oregon and Portland... The Oregonian won a Freedom of Information Act case against a, a government official and was awarded attorney's fees, and the official basically said, fuck you, I'm not paying. So they they put a judgment lien on the official's house so that they can't sell the house without uh, paying the judgment first. Basically, it, it's the gov- It's the girlfriend of Governor, is it Kitzhaber? I've, I've screwed up pronouncing so many things in Oregon that I don't even know and I don't care, frankly, because the guy's no longer in office. But this guy, Haber, was governor and had his quasi-first lady basically using her unofficial position to enrich herself. So the paper demanded her private emails where she was conducting public business. Uh, it's a very common thing. The government does it. You know, I mentioned Lisa Jackson, Obama's EPA administrator. Part of why she resigned was because she was using a private email account to conduct government business. Uh, well, the gist of it was... She fought it. The governor resigned and basically said, hey, now that I've resigned, you can't get it from her. They, they fought it at length. They lost. The court said, look, if you're doing public business, even if it's in private email, you got to turn those emails over. She eventually turned over tens of thousands of them. But they awarded $127,760 for attorney's fees because they fought it so much. Uh, And so the attorney filed a judgment lien against the woman's house since she refused to pay up. I just think this is fucking hilarious. I have zero patience for government officials or government official family members uh, trying to avoid public scrutiny. I just I don't have the patience for it. You know, I've not been a government official, but even when I've been in a semi-government official capacity, you know, I keep referring back to my student government years and everything else. I recognize that public accountability comes with the fucking job. Don't run for it if you don't want to deal with it. You know, so I I just think this is funny. I think this is absolutely funny and kudos to the Oregonian for it. Uh, Also out of Portland, just last night, the police department decided to raid a homeless shelter and pull their own Judge Dredd doing an extrajudicial summary execution of a man right smack in the middle of the shelter uh, for crashing a car. And it was all caught on video because, again, the first rule of Fisk. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, police officers shot and killed a man during an encounter at a southeast Portland homeless shelter Saturday evening. Police said the man had crashed a stolen car nearby minutes earlier. No officers or bystanders were injured. Remember that. Put a pin in that one. Uh, The chief, Burley, said there were many witnesses, however, who were being interviewed late Saturday. As police responded to the crash, they received reports the man might be armed. But he said it was still unclear if the man uh, was armed at the time of the shooting. It was also unclear if the man was involved in the carjacking. So basically, they're looking for a guy in a red vest with a gun. And the guy you see on camera being shot dead is in a blue vest, supposedly had a knife. He's all the way across the fucking room, nowhere near police. We're talking at least 30 feet plus with some kind of physical obstruction in the way. So he couldn't even charge at the officer's. Uh, And they they just 21 seconds after the police come in, they shoot him dead. And the reason why I mention the the injury piece is because, of course, you have all of this, this fucking you have really disgusting people that go out of their way to defend every single police shooting. It's disturbing. I I don't get what you would get your jollies off of that. Uh, But one of the things they're arguing is that this guy was stabbing people with the knife. Well, no, the police chief said no one was injured. You also have folks claiming that police did try less than lethal means of uh, taking him down first. Well, no, because the guy that was recording everything on his cell phone, you can see none of that ever happens. And if it did, that means you'd be trying to do it within this 21-second window from initial entry to execution. This is just not how we fucking are supposed to do things in this country. I was going to say it's not how we do things, but I know for a fact it is how we do them. That's how we're able to have this podcast. It's not how we're supposed to do them in this country. So that's out of Oregon. We're going to come back to Portland in a minute across the border in Washington. Uh, But before we get there, Texas out of Fort Worth. New video footage has been released of Fort Worth police officer John Romer punching a hospital patient in the face. From the story, it says, quote, Officer John Romer has been charged with official oppression, making a false report to police, and lying to a grand jury after a November 2016 arrest of Henry Newsom. Several videos obtained by NBC5 show security officers at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital tracking Newsom with surveillance cameras. Newson, who was 20 at the time, had just spent two days in the hospital and was waiting in the lobby for his mother to pick him up. I'm just trying to figure out what you're doing here, a security officer asked him. Newson said he was waiting for a ride for, from his mother. Romer approaches moments later and immediately confronts Newson. Hey, get off the phone. Shut up. Get off the phone. Let's go. Romer is heard saying in the video. The officer then places his hand on Newsom's chest and pushes him backward, seeming to take offense when Newsom called him bro. Bro, Romer asks, before he punches Newsom in the face, grabs him around the neck, and forces him to the ground. Out of uh, Pasadena, Texas, you know, I I get a lot of questions of what I would consider a, quote, good shoot when police kill somebody. And this one is an example. So a body cam footage shows a pasadena officer pulling a gun and killing 44 year old marco savedra during a traffic stop and i'm not gonna go into too much detail i'll give you the link you can check it out but the gist of it is savedra gets pulled over opens the car door and leans out and says what did i do as his right hand is behind his back he just when well, he looks suspicious as hell uh, but then he leans out and pulls a gun and the officer quickly pulls his gun, shoots at him. Saavedra's not a black guy. He's not Hispanic. He's a white dude. Uh, but it, it highlights that just as with Kentucky, where they can take people without killing them, you can also distinguish between a good shoot, a white guy with the gun, and a black guy holding a cell phone. It can be done. It's not going to be done easily, but it can be done, and we should aspire to do it more often. Out of Virginia in Charlottesville, uh, DeAndre Harris has been acquitted of assault charges. We talked about his case a while back. He's the guy who was on video being savagely beaten by Klansmen at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And then a uh, Harold Cruz, who is a scumbag lawyer here in North Carolina, falsely claimed that Harris assaulted him as a way of getting Harris arrested. We did a Law 140 on citizen warrants and how those plan out. Uh, so basically, they ended up having a trial judge found him not guilty. That's the end of it. But it's worth pointing out, Charlottesville police didn't want to arrest anyone who was involved with Harris's beating. That actually ended up being uh, Sean King and a bunch of Black Lives Matter activists looking at the video and identifying people in order to get Charlottesville PD to finally do their job and arrest them. But when it came to arresting Harris, man, they were all on top of that. Cruz got the warrant done, magistrate signed off, and Harris was arrested lickety-split. Uh, Out of Washington in Vancouver. So this is the Portland case that we're coming back to. I wasn't sure which state to give it to, but since this is where the guy lives, we're giving it to Washington. Uh, An attorney who fired a gun at another attorney's law firm, that's the Oregon side of the story, uh, has now been busted for running a meth lab out of his house. From the story, it says, quote, A Portland based attorney accused of firing several bullets into the Beaverton office of another lawyer also faces charges in Washington state after police found evidence he was creating meth in the basement of his Vancouver home. During a February 28th search of Eric Grafe's home in connection with the shooting investigation, Vancouver police found meth in a glass jar and notes about how to produce the drug. Police also discovered boxes of pseudoephedrine, which can be used to create meth as well as two guns and ammunition in another closet and glass cookware and heating plates in the basement. I, I, I don't know what, you know, here's the thing. I, this always surprises me with lawyers. I spent so much money and time getting this law license. There is no fucking way in hell I would do anything illegal to jeopardize that. I just wouldn't do it. You couldn't get me to relive the past three years. I'm not going to risk getting disbarred. Uh, But yeah, so that happened. That's the state-by-state justice news. Every now and again, we do cover stories in other countries. This time, it's Australia in uh, Melbourne, the state of Victoria. Basically, there's a lot of closed-circuit television camera footage of six police officers beating the shit out of a disabled man for sport. Actually, like bona fide sport. Dude pulls out a camera and makes sure that he can get a money shot on camera. Um, so I'm just going to read you the story. Now, here's the thing. And I've noticed this about Britain as well. Their papers are very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very descriptive with the terminology. And I appreciate that because it helps convey the magnitude of the situation. Uh, but just be forewarned as I give you this quote, I'm not making this up. This is an actual verbatim quote from the story. Uh, it says, quote, John's fleshy torso tumbles earthwards as police swarm around him. There are six officers in all. Two on his back, like wolves on injured prey. The disability pensioner is pinned down. He is in his own front yard, and he is helpless. Minutes earlier, the police had arrived at John's home in Preston in Melbourne after his psychologist called Triple Zero to say she was worried about his deteriorating mental health. John is being held stomach down when an officer belts his lower leg with an extendable baton. With police all over his back, his leg is the only part of John's body where the cop can land a clean blow. The officer strikes again and again, six times in quick succession. You fucking idiot, hisses another policeman, kneeling on John's torso as he punches him in the back. That same officer thrusts a canister close to John's face, then discharges the pepper spray. You like that? He barks. Tastes good, doesn't it? One officer picks up a garden hose and sets it to the high-pressure jet. He blasts John's face. John says later he felt like he was drowning. The torrent stops, allowing John to gather his breath. You happy? How tough are you? He asks his tormentors. That question earns John another sustained spray to the face. As the spray buffets his face, the lead cop... The one who pepper-sprayed John and punched him in the back reaches for his mobile phone and appears to activate its video camera. But before he can begin recording, the policeman spraying John's eyes and nostrils moves to put the hose away, so the cop stops him. He wants the money shot. Grinning, he maneuvers into position like a wedding photographer while his mate waits. Then the camera rolls, and once again the spray buffets John's face. The policeman asks again, you like that? Smells good, doesn't it? It's, it's a common thing, apparently, in other countries to be deliberately abusive to the elderly and the disabled. So folks, that concludes our criminal justice fuckery this week. Let's go ahead and dive into our Law 140, which I'm going to keep brief, but it will be on restatements and why those matter. <laughs> So, this week's Law 140 came about from a just post on our Patreon community page, and it's from Carl Brown relating to a news story about the litigation between our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, and his porn star ex-lover, Stormy Daniels, and uh, Carl's question uh, relates to a tweet where the lawyer for Stormy Daniels references the first restatement of contracts. And Carl says, quote, so this is wild. Apparently, there's something called the Restatement First of Contracts from 1932 that was cited by Stormy Daniels' lawyer. Any chance we could get in a quick explainer on what a Restatement First of Contracts is? I read the Wikipedia page, and I'm still confused. So the answer to that is, yes, you can get a quick explainer on it. And I'm actually going to go a little bit more than that. So the first piece that you have to understand Is Well, let me pause. Before I get to that piece of it, I'm going to put a pin in this. Pause the podcast. Go to our earlier Law 140 on the structure of the court system, because one of the things we discuss is what's called mandatory versus persuasive authority. So precedent is binding from higher courts to lower courts, but it's only persuasive from one court to another. And then outside of court opinions, you also have other things that judges look to. Restatements are part of that. So in this particular case, there are two groups that focus a lot on trying to promote uniformity in the laws and judicial opinions across the several states. You have a group called NCUSAL the NCCUSL, which is the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws. They recently did a rebrand. They're now calling themselves the Uniform Law Commission. But basically, every state has a government-appointed position uh, where the commissions work amongst each other, trying to promote commonality among the statutes in the different states. And then you have the American Law Institute, the ALI. So the most known thing Between NCUSL and ALI was a joint project known as the Uniform Commercial Code. So basically almost every state in the country, I think only Louisiana doesn't have it. Don't quote me on that. But I know well over 45 plus states have it. I want to say it's 48 or 49. But basically, every state has some version of the Uniform Commercial Code where they follow common structures, common sections discussing the same types of things. Each state can kind of tweak it to their needs, you know, as part of the legislative process. But there's a lot of similarity among them, which makes it easier for businesses to do stuff across state lines. Well, basically, back in the early 1900s, you had the same type of concern. Uh, not just with business law, but really with everything, because you have states with different laws, different judicial interpretations. It makes it difficult to understand uh, what's going on. So you had these two groups get set up. The incusal is actual government appointees. And then ALI is a voluntary organization where it's basically uh, a bunch of lawyers and judges and law professors who sit around to pontificate on shit. And to get into it, you have to be nominated by someone within the group, have letters of support from two other people within the group, and then actually get elected by the existing membership. Uh, But to give you an idea, so like ALI's incorporators, the people who created it, uh, included uh, President William Taft, who also became a chief justice. He was chief justice at the time this happened. Uh, Future Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes. Uh, former Secretary of State Elihu Root, and a bunch of other like super famous lawyer people. Um, So from the webpage for the ALI, I'm going to give you some some quotes because it does a good job of explaining what they do. Uh, Quote, the American Law Institute was founded in 1923 following a study conducted by a group of prominent American judges, lawyers, and teachers known as the Committee on the Establishment of a Permanent Organization for the Improvement of the Law. The committee reported that the two chief defects in American law, its uncertainty and its complexity, had produced a general dissatisfaction with the administration of justice. According to the committee, the law's uncertainty stemmed in part from a lack of agreement on fundamental principles of the common law, while the law's complexity was attributed to the numerous variations within different jurisdictions of the United States. The committee's recommendation was that a lawyer's organization be formed to improve the law and its administration. This led to the creation of ALI. The Institute's mission, as set out in its charter, is to, subquote, "...promote the clarification and simplification of the law and its better adaptation to social needs, to secure the better administration of justice, and to encourage and carry on scholarly and scientific legal work." ALI drafts, discusses, revises, and publishes restatements of the law, model codes, and principles of law that are enormously influential in the courts and legislatures, as well as in legal scholarship and education. So each of those have different things, different goals. So your model codes are geared towards legislators to try and get them to adopt, things similar to the Uniform Commercial Code, adopt actual legislation, put laws in place. Your restatements are for judges. So basically they will take a survey of case law across the country, try and find similar cases dealing with similar facts, and see if they can find certain consistent things that a lot of judges always rule on. And they put that into the restatement so that in the future, a judge could just look to the applicable section of the restatement and see if there's something there that's useful. And there will be citations to other cases that have dealt with that particular issue. Um, So actually, they've got this written down on the website. It says, restatements are primarily addressed to courts and aim at clear formulations of common law and its statutory elements and reflect the law as it presently stands or might appropriately be stated by a court. Although restatements aspire toward the precision of statutory language, they are also intended to reflect the flexibility and capacity for development and growth of the common law. That is why they are phrased in the descriptive terms of a judge announcing the law to be applied in a given case, rather than in the mandatory terms of a statute. So then they also have these principles, and principles go to legislators and administrative agencies, and sometimes the courts. Uh, Basically trying to convey certain basic, you know, well, principles, that's what they're called, Uh, principles about the common law, kind of aspirational goals that the law should do separate from specific statutory wording or specific case holdings. Uh, So the way the ALI works is pretty much everything is rooted in what are called reporters, which is a fancy title for a person who structures a project Basically, they will, you know, if there's a pitch for a particular restatement or working on a new principle or a new model code or whatever else, the reporter will structure the project, they'll prepare a draft, and then they'll present that draft to advisors and what are called members constructive groups, or sorry, members consultative groups. Uh, We we call them MCGs, there's an acronym. Uh, But basically, your reporters are typically law professors, and then your advisors are people who have been recommended to the ALI council by the reporter or by the ALI director and deputy director. And it's designed to be – the advisors are supposed to be a diverse group. You want people who are actually subject matter experts who are committed to going through the draft, looking through some of the past opinions, offering some kind of input, and they provide all of that stuff to the reporter – and then those comments get shared among the other participants so that everyone can kind of talk about the stuff in general. It's like when I say they sit and pontificate about that shit, I'm serious. Like they just, they, they talk and they argue and they haggle and whatever else. Um, so then once that is all, you know, reasonably polished-ish, the members consultative group, the MCG, uh, basically... Their participants are ALI members who volunteer to join the discussions at periodic stages throughout the life cycle. They're not necessarily experts, but they kind of offer a different set of eyes, if you will, looking at the drafts, and they try and be the intended audience. So if you want, for example, a restatement to go to a judge, and it's a restatement of contracts, you want the restatement to be written by contracts experts, but you want a judge who doesn't necessarily know a lot of contracts law to read it to make sure that he's understanding it properly. So that's kind of what the MCG is about. So the reporters will prepare the draft of a, a big portion of the project. The draft gets considered by the council, who decides whether or not that it's going to go forward. Then they send the project to other participants for review and, and uh, comments and everything else. And then if the council decides to okay the draft – the reporter is going to prepare a tentative draft which incorporates any, so you have the initial draft, then that becomes a tentative draft where they incorporate any proposed changes, and then that gets submitted for review and approval by the entire ALI membership at their annual meeting. Uh, Or if that doesn't, if it's not trending that way, you're not to tentative draft status, Um, I'm trying to go back into my mind in my computer science days I guess a tentative draft will be kind of like a public beta, if you will, or a golden master almost. Um, so and if that doesn't go that way, if you're still in like alpha stage of the discussion, what they'll do is they'll prepare a discussion draft, which is revised material that's not ready to be voted on. Uh, and then you pass that around and you keep revising it until eventually it reaches tentative draft status. So then once the entire work of tentative draft is approved by the council and by the membership – They'll prepare an official text for publication. And then once the drafter section is approved at the annual meeting, uh, it becomes the ALI's official position. They set up a website on it. They sell books on it. Um, the books are not cheap. I mean, it's something where it's, it's so uh, important and so widely used that they can charge a tremendous premium for it. And I mean, I guess it's providing a good service, so I don't mind that it's expensive. I just can't afford it. You know what I mean? Um, So the most notable thing, as I mentioned, was the Uniform Commercial Code. That was the biggest model code that they have done. Um, But then in addition to that, they've done a lot of these what are called restatements. So they have three different restatements on the law of agency. Uh, They have a restatement on American Indians. They have a restatement on charitable nonprofit organizations. Uh, There are two restatements on conflict of laws. There are two restatements on contracts. There's a restatement on employment law. There are four different restatements on foreign relations law, so things like the effective treaties, sovereign immunity, jurisdiction. It blows my mind that that is the most common restatement that they have. Uh, There are two restatements on judgments. There are three restatements on the law-governing lawyers. Uh, There are three restatements on the law-governing property. There are three restatements on the law-governing restitution, uh, suretyship and guarantee, uh, torts, a restatement on trusts, and a restatement on unfair competition. Now, to give you an example of what a restatement is, uh, I took a picture of the restatement second of contracts. Now, I don't know why they put the addition after the fact that it's a restatement. So it's not the first restatement of contracts. It's the restatement, parentheses, first of contracts. Um, so I've got a the restatement second of contracts. I actually had to study in law school. And I posted a picture of it on the Patreon page. So if you happen to be a patron, you'll get some of this stuff ahead of time before the podcast comes out. Uh, but for example, chapter four of the restatement second of contracts covers consideration, which is one of the elements to have a valid contract. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read you exact quotes to kind of give you an idea of what it, it looks like. Um, so for example, section 73, performance of legal duty says, quote, performance of a legal duty owed to a promisor, which is neither doubtful nor the subject of honest dispute, is not consideration. But a similar performance is consideration if it differs from what was required by the duty in a way which reflects more than a pretense of a bargain. So basically, it's the pre-existing duty rule is what we would call it. If I have to do something for you by law, I can't then can't say, well, if you give me this, I'll give you this thing I'm already obligated to perform. The nature of a contract is that I give something, you give something, and, you know, together we're happy. Um, so that is the restatement version of the pre-existing duty rule. So you can check out that picture. There are a couple other sections there uh, to give you an idea how that stuff works. So in the case of the uh, Stormy Daniels thing, in the first restatement of contracts, there was a section... Called Section 557, that basically said that if you contracted with someone who is a potential whistleblower, they had derogatory information on you, uh, you can't contract their silence in a nutshell. And the official comment to that restatement was about a politician and someone who had dirt on the politician, and the politician buys that person's silence. And they said that contract was void as a matter of law. And it's really like, you know, that came out back in the 30s, the 1930s. And we're almost to the the 2030s, you know what I mean? Uh, So people thought that was crazy. Well, the thing about restatements is that they're supposed to be backward-looking. They look over a survey of past cases to try and tease out uh, what the state of the law is. And that particular section is missing from the second restatement. So I'm going to give you in the show notes a law review article from Cornell university talking about section 557 long before there was ever a Donald Trump. Uh, and what it says in particular part is quote, regardless of section 557's intent, it is unclear whether section 557 accurately reflects current law. Only two cases, both in California appear to have cited the section since its publication in 1932 nor does the second restatement include a comparable provision, although that may be due to the second restatement's general preference for not listing specific instances of illegality. So that's the gist of it. I don't know that it's going to matter. I mean, it's definitely an interesting historical point, and we'll see how a judge rules in that particular dispute. But that is the nature of restatements. Basically, you have people who read a whole bunch of court opinions, then they pontificate with other smart people about what that uh, general principle or theme is. And then they compile it onto a book and charge a shitload of money for it. So that's the gist of it. Hope that answered your questions about restatements. Thank you for the question, Carl. Uh, and folks, that is going to conclude this episode of Fiscamol. I appreciate you for listening. I apologize for my voice one of these days. I will be back to normal. Uh, But until that day comes, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy editing this remotely, thank you so much for listening. I hope all of you have a blessed week, and I will talk to you next Monday.